Oh, when the world is crap and you've got the blues, just take a break from all that horrible news for something crazy, amazingly clever and never half assed. Except when it is. Yes, it's the Randy Rainbow Podcast. This song is almost over, girl, so wipe your tears. You're in for a treat and feast your ears on this remarkable feat. Yes, it's a famous celebrity. Finally, Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Randy Rainbow Podcast. I am your host, Jennifer Aniston. I am here in my very fancy studio, which I hope you'll be actually seeing with your eyeballs very soon. We've got some decorations. We have some people. We have some lighting. I'm joined by my fabulous producer, Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. What's doing, girl? Feeling good. I'm so glad we're doing this in person now. I know. This is kind of, it's still an adjustment because we've been like for a year plus only a Zoom relationship. And now we're like the real deal. Yeah. I mean, I feel like so many people have talked about the in-person energy that you get. Zoom has been wonderful to keep us safe, but this is what's No, you cannot manufacture the chemistry that we have in person. I mean, not since, uh, I'm trying, bogey and Bacall. There you go. That that's us. You, me and you, Rebecca. <laughs> We're like the the bogey and the call of podcasting. So, Rebecca, what do you have on your notes to discuss today? What's the latest? I actually want to ask you about your fans. I want to know what your favorite way to interact with them is. As far away as possible. Okay, great. I'm glad no, they can now know that. That's not true. It's awkward now because I'm in the middle of my tour as we do this and we're doing our talk about the residual effects of COVID. The VIP meet and greets that we do after every show are mm. still kind of COVID based. So we're, we're, we're still implementing a lot of those protocols and it's awkward as fuck. And I always do a disclaimer before we do it because they think that I'm just being a diva, but there are like X's where people have to stand very far away from me Aww. and we take these terribly awkward photos, but it's not my doing. It's still a little weird. I long for the days of just sort of, you know, taking pictures and being up close and personal with people. But that said, it's nice, and it's nice to be in the room with everybody. It's funny, this last weekend, I realized this last weekend that I've been doing this for a minute. Like, I've been around for, you know, a substantial amount of time, and I've been touring for about six years now. I have a lot of return people, and this last weekend, I had a lot of kids who have been coming to see me since 2017, and one one kid had to remind me that she was, when she first saw me, like when I was playing little converted movie houses in Delaware, she came dressed as me. I don't know. She, oh it my might gosh. Be, yeah. And she was like a little pipsqueak. And then she was like, remember me? I'm a big, full grown adult now. And it made me, the point is, Rebecca, it made me feel old. So <laughs> I, I'm like, shit. So this no is, more children are allowed at the show. So that we're now implementing I no children policies. I do not policies. want to see that in real time. Thank you. Well, guys. you know, this is why when my friends have children, I say, that's very nice. Congratulations. I send a gift and then I delete them from my phone and never <laughs> talk to them again. You are now blocked. You are blocked for my life. Children are wonderful and a blessing and I love them, but they are a constant reminder that I am aging and time is passing and I will have none of that. I support this. Thank you. <laughs> I understand. I feel the same way. I can't. I, I feel like can't. your description of your VIP meet and greets is how I dated during the pandemic. I was like, oh. we're wearing a mask and you are six feet away. And it was horrible and awkward. And I don't recommend it. Now you, but you were proactive in dating during the pandemic. So I commend you for that. I'm still not dating and I'm saying it's pandemic related, but really it's just my fear of intimacy. I think those things can be in combination. Oh, Oh, COVID was a huge setback because that's the thing I tried. But socially distanced dating is a terrible way to date. And I was like, oh, no, this is not I'm not going to do this. And, you know, I really took a break. This was before vaccination. So, like, you weren't going to take a risk. We didn't know very much then. So people like trying to, like, live their life when we're like at the end of quarantine. So uh, it's funny because I feel like I know a lot of people who met their partners during the pandemic. Really? Yeah. A lot of people were like, oh, well, we met and then, you know, worked it out and are like together. And I'm like, I went on a few dates and I was like, absolutely not. I'm just going to wait. 
I'm fine. Yeah. It was too stressful. Well, and all these people. I guess like, it, it kind of makes sense because, you know, when you're in, in a situation, it's like those disaster movies. It's like the end of the world is kind of the best time to fall in love because then you, I mean, that kind of, in a way, bonds you quicker. romantic. Isn't that romantic? <laughs> well, you know who just got married recently? Who's that? My friend Adam Rapon. Ah, uh, yes. Did you know that he happens to be on this episode of the Randy Rainbow Podcast? This one? Yes. Oh, I can't wait. I know. Well, you should know these things. You are the producer, so I'm a little concerned, but I'm, I'm going to assume that you're just playing along, and you did know that. But he is on, and we talk about his fabulous husband and how I am still single as fuck. I did not date during the pandemic. I got a cat during the pandemic because I'm that girl. But he's wonderful and he's so charming and funny. So I'm excited to talk to him. And uh, he's going to be here in just a little bit. It's the Randy Rainbow Podcast. Let's answer the phone. Pick up. Hello, Randy. Will Tippy the cat ever get to interview one of the guests? Please reply. Please reply. I love that she is almost urgent about getting an answer to this very serious question. <laughs> Will Tippy, my gorgeous Tippy the cat, ever conduct an interview on this podcast? I mean, I would love it. Everyone knows that Tippy asks the hard-hitting questions. I greatly respect her journalistic integrity. And let's face it, she has the bone structure of a young Diane Sawyer. Unfortunately, I don't think that we can afford her prices on this budget, but uh, we'll keep trying. Randy, do you have a political consultant that you ask questions of? Because you seem pretty good at this politics stuff. And I'm not saying you're not smart enough to be that person, but I would think that you may want to... Uh, I don't know, consult somebody every once in a while. I'm just wondering if you do that kind of thing. If you have somebody that's your political guru or they can tell you about the ways things work in the government when you're not quite sure, appreciate you. Thank you for the question. I will say it for you. I am not smart enough for that stuff. Um, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And I, I feel like people often give me a little too much credit for my political awareness. I'm just like all of you, just you know, some yenta on the internet with an opinion. I just am putting it in the form of musical comedy and trying to be as creative about it as possible. But frankly, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Now, having said that, because I do have a following and because there are people in my audience and sometimes younger people in my audience who say that they learn things from my videos, over the years I have try to be more aware of that responsibility. I think we should be when we are given any sort of platform. So I do do my due diligence and do a little research from time to time. So I kind of know what I'm talking about and, you know, give a little bit of a schoolhouse rocks-ish kind of civics lesson or inject some kind of education, dare I say, wherever it feels natural and right to do so. But other than that, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Hi, Randy. This is Melanie from Boston. Did you used to dress up and put on musicals as a child? Thanks. Hi, Melanie. Thanks for the question. No, I was actually very heavily involved in sports as a kid. Just kidding. Obviously, I did that all the time. The occasion that pops into mind is the one that's sort of been noted the most this year because I wrote about it in my memoir, Playing With Myself, now available wherever books are sold. You have to do a sound effect ding. every ding. Every time I reference my book, they're going to do a ding sound. And that was when I dressed up as Snow White in my backyard and put on a whole full-scale production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs for the neighbors. And my mother made me a dress and everything. So yeah, I did that a lot. If you'd like to ask me a question, you can go to the show notes, click the link, and talk to me. Love to hear from you. And now a word from our sponsor. Hello, friends. Randy Rainbow here. And if you're like me, you like a bit of kick-ass hot sauce on your food and a fiery political slant in your cable news. Well, woo-wee, buckle up, buckaroos, because from Fox News to your food, it's Sean Hannity's Hannity's Insanity Hot Sauce. 
It's so sweltering, it'll have your hairline sliding down mid-forehead. Known for spicing up late-night news with a heavy dose of embellishment, warped perspective, and a dash of bigotry, Sean Hannity has now moved into the world of home cooking, just like Paula Deen. Hannity's Insanity Hot Sauce uses only the most supreme ingredients. El Diablo Blanco Ghost Peppers, white vinegar, white tomatoes, white onions, salt, and ivermectin. The science might not be in on whether Earth is warming, but the verdict is in on Hannity's hot sauce, and it's a hot mess of insanity. Hannity's insanity isn't for the faint of heart or those with a fully functional brain. Just one bit of Hannity and you'll be questioning everything that's brought you to this point in your life. You don't have to believe me or the dozens of women who accused Roger Ailes of sexual misconduct, but why not find out for yourself? Just look for the bottle with the good old Dixie flag on it. It's Hannity's Insanity Hot Sauce, and it's available exclusively at Hobby Lobby. That was really a kick, but enough of that skit. Time to drop all the shit now, so let's cut the shit. I think a fabulous kiki with someone I love would be back. It's time for a guest. My guest today is a champion. He has skated his way onto many podiums and into the gay little hearts of Americans. It's the incredibly talented Adam Rippon. Hey, Randy. How are you? I'm good. You're on the West Coast, right? I am. So you're early over there. You woke up for me. I did. And Mm. I made sure that I was wide awake because I want to be fully present for this. Well, I just took an Advil PM before the interview, so don't do me no favors. I like to be really sedate. Okay. You want to fall asleep by the end. I'd like a full ASMR experience if you could provide that. And then by the end, I'll just be unconscious. That's kind of what I was hoping for. Great. Before I got on here. Yeah. Well, it's nice to see your face. The last time I saw you was in New York. It was. We did a reading of the Laramie Project in 2018, which was a benefit for the Matthew Shepard Foundation. Mm -hmm. And it was so nice to spend time with you. I thought we were going to be best friends forever. Never heard from you again, but that's all right. Um, But we had a nice time. And I said to you then, I was so surprised by, and also not surprised, by what a wonderful actor you are. Oh, you're so sweet. Well, it's true. Performing is performing and you're a performer. But uh, is that something that you want to do more of? Plans to do more? Yeah, I would love to do more of it. I love performing. It's always been something that like I've loved to do. And like as a figure skater, you know, there's a huge performance element to it. And that was always my favorite part of the competition. But I love doing things in the comedy space. I enjoy like acting and it helps that I'm a good liar so I can do it. You're deceptive. And oh, that's the secret. It is the secret. That is true. I think Molly Shannon wrote in her memoir that I just recently read that that was sort of like the pearl of her acting ability and comedy ability, which is all one and the same, is that her, I think her father made her lie as a kid. Mm. And, and that really is where it all begins. We're just fucking liars. Yeah. It's just also being a little bit delusional. And I think <laughs> if you want to be an Olympic athlete, you have to be kind of out of your mind because it's so improbable, everything that goes along with it, that if you if you're a little too in on yourself you can't feel the fantasy. And so I think being a little delusional has always kind of helped me. Well, you're preaching to the choir. I'm very (laughs) delusional. But you are so funny too. You're really legit funny and your Instagram is hilarious. Where does that come from? Because usually I find you have to like come from a funny family that's genetic. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. And I also feel that people who do things in comedy or who like are funny to a lot of people that when they go home, I feel this way, that when I go home, I'm like the least funny person in my family. Oh, I'm a nightmare. I'm miserable. Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely my, I think my siblings are a few moments away from Axe Pitchfork lit torch from asking me to leave Pennsylvania yet again, because that's actually how I left the first time was from Pitchfork. That's how you wound up on the West Coast, Pitchfork induced. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Terrible. That's funny. Yeah. No, I I do. I find like since it became my job to be, you know, funny, mm-hmm. I'm I, in my personal life, I am a misery. And so <laughs> I, my relationships, my personal relationships have, have suffered tremendously. But that's another story. Mm-hmm. Speaking of relationships, a lot has happened since I was with you last in 2018. Yes. In the world, in our worlds, mostly horrible and tragic, but some not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, including you got married 
I did get married. Mazel yes. tov to you. Thank you. And you and you eloped earlier this year, right? Yeah, we got married on New Year's Eve and it was kind of by chance. We never really wanted to have a big wedding. And the reason we started thinking about eloping and why it would work best for us was that my husband is from Finland. And so we had been dating for a few years. And then when COVID started, I first of all, I never thought that I would get married because I was like, what's the point? I, I don't. And I'm like, mm. Why? I don't need yeah. to get married. I'll just, you know, if I love somebody, I'll just be with them and whatever. But I always thought that, like, you know, if there's a reason to get married, that reason will present itself and I'm open to it. I'm not, you know, completely rejecting the idea. And then when COVID started, he was in Finland and I was in LA and we weren't able to see each other for like almost a year. And a way for that not to happen would be for us to get married. And I thought, oh, you know what? If I was ever going to get married, it would be to this person. And that makes total sense because I wouldn't want something like this to happen again. And then it just became very clear to me that like, that's what we should do next. And JP, my husband, always wanted to get married, but you know, wasn't going to push me or make me do it, which so grateful for. So we decided that basically we applied for a K-1 visa. So I'm a 90-day fiancé success story. Okay. So we applied for the K-1 visa. That took another almost 10 months. And then when he could come over, we were like, let's figure out something. Maybe we'll do something small. And that led to me Googling instant marriage Los Angeles. And so I did the classic romantic story of driving out to Encino and getting married in an office building. That is so beautiful. But you are like me. You never sort of grew up with that fantasy. Mm -mm. So there was nothing lost in an elopement. No. And from being at a bunch of other weddings of my friends, you know, it's always fun. But I mean, I don't know. I just never pictured myself having that big wedding. And we had just spent so much time apart that it was really nice for us to just have this be one-on-one -on -one for us. And then yeah. to have Chipotle right after, which was kind of ideal. I love it. That is so nice. Well, I'm so happy for you. I'm still single, but whatever. That's fine. But did you meet, is it true, on a dating app? Is that right? Is that the origin story? Yeah. I ask you about this because I am putting mm -hmm. myself out there. And Good. you are a few years younger than I. How dare you bring that up? But light years ahead of me, romantically speaking. And I feel you're very wise. So mm -hmm. give a bitch some advice. Like what... What am I doing wrong? I just have recently gotten back into the app thing. Okay. Okay, go. This is my, my biggest piece of advice is like just to put yourself out there, but don't go looking for it. I met my now husband when I was mentally, this is exactly what I told myself I was going to do. That I put myself out there to like date and have fun and whatever, but I was like not going to get into a relationship. My idea was that I would see where all of my best friends would like end up and that I would just live in a close proximity to them so that I could hang out with them all the time. And then that's just what I was going to do. I was just going to be on my own because I was like, you know, I'm physically a nightmare, mentally even bigger nightmare. So I'm like, why would I, you know, why am I going to put myself through this of trying to like better myself for someone else when I can't even better myself for myself? So I'm like, I'm not even going to worry about it, whatever. And so what was really helpful was that I was on the apps. I was at a competition in Finland. Obviously, I was incredibly focused because I was on Tinder while I was at this competition. Clearly. Mm, clearly. That's like me backstage of all of my concerts. I'm, I'm grinding. <laughs> right. Because you, you never know. You don't. What? Listen, I'm traveling. Like, well, you got to get what you can get. Right. Right. So we matched, but we never met. And he went on vacation and I started the competition. So I wasn't really on my phone. He wasn't on his phone. When I got back to my home, he messaged me on Instagram. And so it was like, oh, this really handsome guy from Finland who I'm probably never going to meet. Why will I ever go to Finland? And so we just started chatting back and forth. And this is crazy, but I was super honest about like when he would ask a question, I would answer it honestly. And I remember when we had talked on FaceTime, I wasn't trying to like look cute. I was just got home like after the gym or just took a shower and had like every possible thick lotion on my face. 
And we would just have conversations and I was just super honest. And then surprisingly, honesty worked to connect with someone. Isn't which, that obnoxious? That's, that's the case. It, turns it is out. horrible. I know. It is horrible. But it was basically, I was in a place where I was like, I don't need to be with anyone. And I still feel like I'm in that place. But what I do feel is that the person that I'm married to and that I'm with motivates me in a way for me to still feel independent, because that's super important to me, to feel independent. Right. I agree with you. Well, it sounds like it's a nice, healthy relationship. See, when I meet handsome men from Finland on Instagram, it usually ends with them asking for my credit card. But I'm happy for you. No, that's great. Um, Sometimes that's an icebreaker for them to memorize all the numbers. I guess. It's kind of cute. Yeah. I'm going to DM him back. Um, (laughs) You know, the other thing I like about your relationship is that you, and correct me if things have changed since last I checked, but you are not having children. You have no interest no, in having, none. is that right? Thank yeah. God, because gay parents are terrific. And I have lots of friends who are having kids now. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you can relate and it's fabulous. I cheer them on, but no, well, I'm barren like you no. and, and I love it. And one of the things I'm most looking forward to in my life is not ever having kids. Have you ever wanted to, or is this sort of like a revelation that you've come to? I've never liked kids. When I was a kid, I didn't like kids. And I have moments, I, I'm sure you have little flashes where, you know, like my homological clock is ticking and I'm like, oh, maybe, oh, cute, maybe, maybe. But then I think, oh, you know what I love? Not having kids. That is so great to come home, not be responsible for anyone but myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I, you know, I'm the oldest of six. So I, growing up, was always like around kids. And I think that probably made me grow up a lot faster because I remember I had an aunt who said that she didn't like kids. And I remember being like eight or nine myself, being like, how can you say that? Like, we were all kids once. So what does that even mean? Do you like hate people? And I was always like, I want to prove to her I'm not like the other girls, (laughs) (laughs) that I'm different. I'm not a kid. And now that I'm older, I'm like, oh, I get it. Because I don't hate kids but I don't want them. And I completely relate to you in that there are those flashes of like, I'll see JP holding our niece and I'll go, that looks really good in your hands. And then I go, but put it down (laughs) and we need to leave. That's so good that you have the foresight to know Mm -hmm. that that will eventually end. Yes. And and parenthood is forever. And better you than me, I say to my friends. And we just got a dog. You did. He's so cute, by the way. I, Tony. Tony. Is yeah. Oh, yeah. Tony, Tony. I couldn't imagine more responsibility because Tony's kind of peeking at his verbal development at seven months. Meaning what? He's not going to talk back to me. He's not going to talk shit about me in 10 years. Right. He won't write a tell-all. No. Right. That's the other thing that I couldn't imagine bringing someone into the world and giving them so much of me to knowing that they're going to talk shit about me in 15 years. <laughs> right. Who needs that? I don't need that. Mishagas. Well, you also, since I saw you last, you wrote a memoir, which I recently referred to in preparation for our little talk today and was catching up on some highlights. It's so good. You're such a good writer and you're so funny, as I said. So it's an enjoyable read. And I I realized how much we have in common, in addition to hating kids and being a misery, (laughs) not the least of which is that we both got our ears pierced at Claire's. Mm -hmm. Is that, was that a thing? I thought that was like my story. And then I was like, oh my God, I, well, I relate to you. I thought that that was my story until I realized it wasn't. Getting my ears pierced at Claire's was you can see you can see I'm getting emotional. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't want to go here, but I you know, don't I'm know about looking you. Looking for the clickbait. I do look like Samantha, the American girl doll, when I have like my ears pierced. I just look like a, a little cabbage patch girl. Yeah. And I didn't realize that until like now when I see pictures of myself, I'm like, because I have like round cheeks and stuff and it never looked good. And sometimes I play with the scar tissue is still there because that gun they use. Is, I know, I still have. I still got a little hole. It's intense. Yeah. It's an, an Yeah, it's intense, but I did love it. Can you still put an earring in? Yes. I, I've never tried. Can I? I mean, I still, I still feel the hole. I'm feeling my hole right now. I'm feeling both my holes. This, <laughs> this, we are going to get a whole new audience. One of them is crunchy. I don't know if the mic is picking oh my that God. Up, but I'm crunching the inside of but it. But I wonder if I can put something in it. 
<laughs> I'll try maybe a little later in the interview. Off camera. Off camera. Yeah. Oh, well, first of all, I know this was a couple years ago for you writing the memoir, but I just recently mm-hmm. went through this process. I just put mine on. I know. Congratulations. Thank you. I was waiting for a you. A bestseller. Thank you. Uh, you didn't have to bring it up. I wish you had done it sooner. Um, but I found the process very, like a lot of things. First of all, it was very fulfilling. It was joyful also much more emotional than I anticipated. Did you find? Totally, absolutely the same. I was really excited to write a memoir because I was like closing out this really huge chapter of my life of being an athlete. And I knew that I wasn't going to try to compete at another Olympics. I knew that I wasn't going to continue to be an Olympic level athlete. I knew that that was over and that I was going to start to pursue other things. And I thought that this book would be this opportunity to kind of reflect on everything that had happened up to that point and to help process a lot of everything that was going on in my life, which it absolutely was. That's what it was for me, but it was absolutely way more emotional than I was expecting it to. I remembered so many things that I had completely forgotten about. And it was just finding that perfect balance of putting in what I thought was necessary, taking out what clouded the overall idea of what I wanted that book to be. But I'm so curious to hear of your own process of when did you have a moment where you felt like it was more emotional than you thought it was going to be. Well, it was, I had my mother on the phone a lot, especially through the earlier years. Mm -hmm. And just for the sake of timeline, we ended up talking about things that we had never spoken about before in this way. It was very therapeutic for us. And it was healing. You know, I talked about my father and all of that stuff. And when you put it in book form and release Mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's very cathartic. You're, You're literally closing a chapter on your life and it makes you lighter in the end. But so it was nice to have that kind of release. Right. And I will say that I had, while I was writing it, just started dating JP. And so when I would finish a chapter and, you know, it was the first time I had written anything. So I worked with a writer to help me like get it all. Cause I was like, I don't know where to get started. And I have no idea what working with like a ghostwriter would be like, you know, do I just say everything. And then they write it all down. And like, how does that work? And so I worked with this guy, his name is Brian Moylan. He's one of the funniest people. And he was so helpful. And he was like such a great teacher because we would talk about everything. And he helped me set up the chapters and he'd kind of get something together. And then I would go in and I would rewrite the whole thing. And then I'd have him look at it. And so it was amazing, like crash course in learning how to like write and put something together like that. So I'd work on it, I would write the chapter, and then I would want to read it out loud so that I could hear if it sounded like my voice, because I really wanted it to sound more conversational than, you know, from eye to paper. And it does. I I was listening to some of the audio book, and it's just, it's you talking. That's, it's exactly what I wanted. So I wanted to read it out loud. So I basically told JP my whole story because I was writing it at the same time, which was, I mean, I think kind of intense for him, as you might imagine, like you're like, you just start dating someone. You're like, chapter four. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And I mean, like maybe in retrospect, that was a little heavy. (laughs) Might Um, have been a bit much, but. But um, that was something that was really, you know, he really got to know a lot about me. And it's so different when you've worked to put it on paper and then you read it and you you almost see your own story from different eyes for the first time. Yes. One of the most interesting parts of the whole process was releasing it and then hearing from people who I'd not heard from or spoken to in years. It's like it's like a big deal for other people when you put out a book, it turns out. Because I heard lots of nice things. You know, I spoke in loving terms about a lot of people from my past and then not everyone makes the cut. So I heard from a a surprising amount of people like from high school who I haven't spoken to in 20 years. Yeah. Sending me these nasty DMs on Instagram saying, oh, well, I guess the memories that we shared didn't mean as much to you. You know, that's funny because I had one instance with this person, this like older woman that I very casually knew. We were on a very like, hello, goodbye basis. Maybe at this point, 15 years ago, like I was really young and she was like the mother of somebody that I used to skate with. And we were always like, hey, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. She was always super nice. And when my book came out, she 
left me a voicemail and I was like, oh, wow, I haven't heard from her in a very long time. She left a voicemail and was like, hey, I saw your book came out and I just, I want you to know that if I'm not in it, I don't think I can read it and I'm going to actually be very hurt. (laughs) She didn't even wait. She didn't even wait to find out that she had made the cutting room floor to to give you a disclaimer about her emotions. I I would have replied. I would have replied. It was like, it's all about you. Yeah. Chapters six through 14 are about you. (laughs) That's what I want to say to these people. Like, I'm so glad those memories mean a lot. That's very touching. And when you write your book, I look forward to reading all about them. Yeah. How am I? Other than that, I had nobody who said, why wasn't I in it? Or I think sometimes people are afraid of me because I'm kind of insane. So I don't think they were trying to question whether they were in it or not. You say you're insane, but you seem very together to me. Is it all just a ruse? Kind of. And then on that note, you'd mentioned in your book in your earlier years, I related to this too, that you're kind of a perfectionist and always have been. Yes. In relationship, is that something that is challenging for a JP, say? I mean, does that <laughs> has, has that stayed with you? I think I am a perfectionist. And I think that for JP and I, the most important thing is that he knows where I'm coming from. Because it can be broken down very easily into just like our different styles of like handling tasks. Because I'm a perfectionist, if I have something that I need to go put in the pantry, I'll open the pantry and I'll see that, oh, it also needs to be dusted. So then I'll start dusting it. And then I'll find something in the back and go, oh, well, I need to clean this out. When really all I should have done was just put it on the shelf and like close the door. And that's the way that he would have dealt with it. Like he would have put it away and whatever. But then I'll go and I'll start obsessing over something. And then all of a sudden it's five days later, I'm crying. Okay. I'm not crying, but maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in this scenario, let's just say, yeah, Okay. I'm crying. I believe it. And I've spent $1,000 at the container store when all I should have done was just put the beef jerky in a basket and walk away. It's a little odd couple situation, although you're probably more extreme than he, I, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. I think that's when I get into like my insanity. It's always my therapy is cleaning. I know. Me too. We're Joan Crawford in every way. Oh, God. (laughs) We're horrible. Well, speaking of Joan Crawford, oh, my God, I'm so good at segues. I found another common thread in our trajectories was the inspiration that we found from an early age uh, in diva worship. Yes. You talk first about being inspired, seeing some painting of a woman on the side of a popcorn tin, ice skating. Mm-hmm. By the way, I love her work. She's fabulous. Yes. Um, who have been some of the divas who inspired you from that age and since in your career and art? I think when I was young, I still am. Thanks for correcting me. <laughs> I remember that I was in and out of the hospital as a five-year-old because I was dramatic. And... I remember one time I had to get my appendix out and then I was dehydrated, which I think is the five-year-old version of exhaustion. And I remember that I would be watching TV a lot in the hospital. And I think my very first person who I thought was just the most incredible person was Delta Burke. I remember watching Designing Women in the hospital. And I can't even remember what it was, but there was some scene about a fur coat that she was wearing. And I would repeat it to all the nurses in the hospital, which really made me popular at Mercy Hospital in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And I remember that as I was getting ready to go back to school, I was saying this again. And my mom was like, you can't say that when you go to school. And I remember that was the first time I felt silenced. Right. And that was the first, oh my God, it's so fabulous to be fabulous. And then I think as I got older, you know, I was having this conversation the other day of who are my first pop divas. Mm -hmm. And my first was not Britney. It wasn't Christina. My first was Gwen Stefani. And I think it was Gwen because I could see just a girl from Anaheim, period. Yeah. (laughs) And I I could be a girl from Anaheim. All right. And I just, I think that I have always liked people who are a little different, but I think it started with Delta Burke and it was that popcorn tin. I just like people who are a little bit over the top because on this popcorn tin, I I remember the silhouette of it. It was this woman from the 1800s, Victorian era. She was in this long, long coat, as I can only assume was made of fur. 
and a muff. And I remember I was like, I want to be exactly like her. And I still can picture the visual outside of the popcorn tin that was divided into three flavors, which were butter, caramel, and orange. And so good. I, I just, I remember it so vividly. I mean, who is, do you remember who your first, first diva is? Well, I was always like a 50 year old gay man, even when I was 11. Uh -huh. So for me, it was the Barbaras, the Judys. I was old school. I mean, I, I then subsequently, you know, had to adopt some interest in pop culture. Had to, just to, right. just to fit in. <laughs> right. So, you know, the Britneys and the Christinas then then followed. But I was never like a Madonna gay or anything like that. I was, no. It was always musical theater people for me. Like Shirley Jones and The Music Man. Mm -hmm. Like super gay. Any musical theater kind of interest in your childhood or no? I mean, so Delta Burke, my first one. Second one, Judy Garland. And okay, it was devastating to me that she wasn't, currently 16 while I was watching the movie and that she was dead when I was watching the movie. Oh, when did you have this revelation? By the way, as we record this, it's her 100th birthday, I believe, today. Is it? Yeah, I'm going to a party at Stonewall tonight to celebrate wow. Judy Garland's 100th birthday. Oh my, have a drink for me, please. Honey, two. And so The Wizard of Oz was like, that was, I could not get enough. It had everything that I loved. It was. It had tears. It had songs. It had color. Yeah. Oh, God, so good. Everything. Well, speaking of Muff, you <laughs> also came out, and I found parallels to our stories, too, because, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that we share in common that we came out to families that were not overtly homophobic or mm -hmm. disapproving of gay people in general, which for me was complex. You know, my mother told me I was gay. She sat me down. She's like, you're gay. She became my gay agent. I will tell everyone in the family, you have fun. Don't worry about it. And I've since said that I feel like I missed out on some of the challenges that a lot of my friends had. Mm -hmm. And it, it likely would have strengthened me to have a little bit more of a, uh, you know, of a challenge in coming out. Of course, we wish for everybody to have understanding parents. Mm -hmm. But my father was weird about it for his own reasons. And... It sounded like you, you, your parents, too, you had your own sort of challenges. Yeah, exactly in the same vein. You know, I came out to my mom first, and I remember I didn't want it to be dramatic. So I was like, I'm not going to just stop a dinner and announce it to everyone. So I did something more dramatic by taking everyone aside separately and telling each person individually. So I had like this, like, you know, heart pounding experience with like every single sibling of mine. And I'm very lucky that I had an incredibly positive experience, but it was a completely different situation when I decided that it was really important for me to be like out publicly as an athlete. That was something that was different because it wasn't just like the approval of my friends and my family that I was wanting in a sport where you're judged. You know, it's not a stop clock. It's not how high can you jump, not how quickly can you do this. There's a lot of personal opinions my mom was a former dancer. She used to have like a dance studio and she saw a lot of the things that her gay friends were up against and the way that they were discriminated against. And I, my mom was really not a big fan of me wanting to come out publicly only because I think she really felt like it would limit my experiences or opportunities. And I just told her that it was really important to me. It was really important to me because after the Olympics in 2014, they were in Russia where they had this anti-gay propaganda law. And that was the first time I felt like, um, which is a huge privilege, the, but the first time that I felt like, oh my God, just for being me, like, what is propaganda? What does that even mean? And I felt like it was really important for me to be out. And... Um, that was the first time that I was like, you know, I, I know that you're worried for me, but this is something that's really important to me. And if I do miss out on opportunities, then then they just weren't meant to be because like, I don't know if I can have any sort of success if I can't have it as myself. And so that was the only time that I really needed to forge my own path and know that my family was, you know, not against me, but, you know, like, we're here for you, but almost not knowing what, what would happen next. 
was when you came out professionally, I mean. Yes. Which is which was no small feat for you. I mean, you you know, your chosen profession has a long history and complicated legacy of homophobia, particularly in the world of figure skating. Mm-hmm. And you have since become, of course, uh, an icon of the progress made in that arena. So what ultimately do you think gave you the chutzpah to do that? Was it the the strong foundation you had in your friends and family? Was it progress you saw come before you? Was it a combo? I think knowing that my friends and family loved me regardless, and also knowing that the people in my world respected me. But I think the biggest thing was that in my career, I was like an alternate to the Olympic team in 2010. And then in 2014, I had a great opportunity to try and qualify for the team. And I didn't make it, but this was the first time that I was competing. But I was also thinking about all of this LGBTQ plus issues that were finally in the front lobe of my mind. And like I was an out gay person in my personal life. But in my sport, I was 24 then. And that's already like one foot in the grave, one on a banana peel. (laughs) And so I was thinking like, you know, if I don't make this team in 2014, it's very, very unlikely and probably will not ever happen that I'll go to the Olympics. And then I didn't. And so I felt like that was rock bottom professionally, that like I had wanted so badly to go to an Olympic Games and it wasn't going to happen. And I wasn't not just an alternate, like I just was not on the team at all. Like I just did not do very well. And it felt like, oh my God, did I just like waste all this time? I, I just felt like at my lowest. And I remember that I kept competing that next year and it just, you know, was okay. It wasn't great. And I went to Thanksgiving at like a friend's house and her mom was like, you need to either get it together or quit because it's getting so sad. And I was like, oh my God. Sad. She was right. I hate like, her. She, she was the best. Okay. Because she's always, I've known her for a really long time and she was always honest with me and I knew that she was just telling me like it, like it is. Like she, and so I remember I had a competition that was in eight weeks and I was like, I'm just going to go balls to the wall with this. And so I just trained like crazy and I did really, really well. It was probably one of the best things I've ever done in competition. And I just didn't give a fuck about anything. I just went and was like, if this is the last thing I do in skating, then so be it, whatever. And I did really well. And in that moment, I just felt like, oh, when like I just do this for me and I do things that empower me, I have success. And I felt really burdened by like other people's expectations that I think I was putting on myself. And so I felt like in those next few years, I was like, you know what, let's just see like how far I can take this. I don't know if I'll be able to skate all the way to 2018 when I'll be 28. I don't know if that's possible. Um, But let's just see like how far I can go. And in those next few years, I was like, I'm going to redo all the things that I wish I had done differently. And I wish that I had said something in the lead up to the 2014 games about being gay and that like I thought that it was wrong and, and bizarre that queer athletes would have to compete under this like anti-gay propaganda law. And I was like, I'm going to redo all of those things. And I'm going to just like do these next few years. And I- I'm going to go back and do those important things that I wish I had done. And I did. And that's the way that I like lived those n- next four years. And because of that, that really did change my whole world. Just being authentic is the is the most, it's so cliche, but I find that, that once you just cut the shit and start yeah. just doing what you're driven by, it works, turns out. Yes. And when you feel like you have nothing to lose, you don't have anything to lose. So you don't go into anything holding back. And that was the big thing that I just, and I try to continue to do that today, is like go into every situation and not feel like there's anything to lose. There's no reason to hold back. What's the the worst thing that would happen when I was in that position was that I would just be exactly where I was. But if I didn't try, I wouldn't know if I could get any further. So that was the biggest lesson of like, just try. Just try, see what you can do. And if it doesn't go well, just learn from it and just try again. But you can't go lower than where you are right now. Right. And that was like the the overall arching theme of those last few years of my skating career was just that. What's the worst that can happen? Right. Well, now you're an old broad 
And yes. uh, you're like a mama rose now and you've stepped into the world of coaching. And what's mm-hmm. that been like? Well, I was really lucky that I only had one student that I was working with. And I was really lucky because she worked with the coach that I worked with. So I was able to kind of pop in and out and be a little bit more of like a mentor. And, you know, it was very interesting because I could finally, for the first time, see from the outside looking in the craziness that like as an athlete, you put your coaches through. That's like completely unnecessary where you're like, I can't do anything. And my world is falling apart. And like as a coach, you're like, why don't you just go have a coffee and come back in an hour and like stop being dramatic? And It was very interesting to have that kind of perspective for the first time and also to have like the foresight of everything in our life comes and goes and the moments are fleeting no matter the, you know, level of attention that it gets or not. And also that feeling of pressure is relative. Like this isn't the most pressure filled situation in the world. Like I can think of the times I felt like the most pressure or the most nervous Being at the Olympics was definitely one of them, but so was taking my permit test for the first time. Like, I remember that feeling of like wanting to throw up. And I remember being at the Olympics being like, I don't think I've been this nervous since I had to take my permit test. Right. And it's like that feeling was the same. And so that nervousness is just all relative to the experience you're happening. You know, you don't feel it more or less. It just, you feel nervous or you don't. Yeah, And being able to kind of relay that sort of perspective to someone going through something that you had just went through is um, really beneficial, especially when it's the most important moment in their career. But then you can also remind them that they're 25 and that in four years, this will pass and people will be thinking about the next group of girls that are competing or the next group of boys. So live in this moment right now so that when you look back, you don't think, oh, God, I just wish that I wasn't so stuck in my head. Yeah, I know. It's it's so easy to say, but it's like, it's the biggest, it's the, the biggest, it's the, the biggest, biggest um, thing to get over. To, yeah. Well, I did want to ask you this because you, of course, you, you've had a crazy attention on you and have had tons of admirers from all worlds. But who is the most exciting celebrity other than me right now on this podcast that you encountered or heard from or hung out with? Well, obviously we shared a dressing room. Was that, was that it? It was, I think, and I think that that has to be, it's up there. Yes. I think, um, I was afraid you were going to say Reese Witherspoon, but I knew it was me. (laughs) I would say you first. And then I would say, uh, honestly, yeah, meeting Reese was number two because Reese started to talk about me on Twitter and going to the Olympics before the Olympics had even started. And that really brought this different set of eyes to what I was doing. And so it was really exciting to meet somebody who was getting invested into the Olympics and that took the time to write and talk about me. And I will say that everyone I've ever met has been incredibly kind and generous. And Reese was so nice. But the only time truly that I've ever been like starstruck meeting somebody was meeting Hillary Clinton. That was the first, that was the only time I've ever been like, I'm nervous, like I'm, I feel unworthy and weird to be in the presence of this person. And I remember like, I was going to introduce her at some event and she's backstage and she's powdering her face and she's like, so what are you going to do next? And I was like, (laughs) Hillary, what are you going to do next? (laughs) Yeah, let's compare notes, Hillary Clinton. (laughs) I have, uh, I've never met her, but I, but right behind me, there's a letter from her that she wrote me. She sent me a letter. She's, she really is the best. She is. Well, now let's talk present and future before I let you go, because I've kept you too long. But you're, but this, this show, this MTV show that you've been doing, which is, looks so fun. I want to be on set with you. You have to, Messiness on, on MTV, renewed for a second season. Is that what I heard? Yes. Yeah, we've already shot the first half of it. So how's that? And how's it working with uh, these other gay icons like uh, Snooki, Nicole Polizzi, mm-hmm. and Tori yeah. Spelling? And I mean, what's that like? It's everything you probably think it is. It's the first and only job I've ever had where they have to drive me there because I'll 
have been drinking all day that they have to drive me home. So honestly, it's kind of ideal. Yeah. But Tori is so cute and so funny and has so many crazy Hollywood stories in the 90s. And, um, you know, Nicole is iconic. Like, I remember watching Jersey Shore on my netbook in 2010, being like, this is the most insane 4'11 person I've ever seen on a screen. And um, to be able to say that that's my coworker is something I never thought I'd be able to say. So I guess, you know, the universe really does work in very mysterious ways and connects us to the craziest people. I love it. Well, I have to come be a guest on that. Have to. Do you, again, this goes back to my not believing that you're a full mess. I mean, you're very self-deprecating in descriptions of yourself. But do you get messy? Like, do you, I mean, like when you're out, is there a line that you cross? I feel like no. So it's very like far. I would say that no, I'm not very, I'm so not messy that that it's a bit messy. Mm. But there are moments where it's sometimes I'm like, you know what? Let's just have fun. And I'll go completely wild. And when I say wild, I just mean that I've like busted my forehead open a few times Mm. dancing. It's just, I can get there. It's not your everyday occurrence because I want to have good skin. I get it. I get it. And so... I, that's always going to be my first priority. I love it. Well, you are beautiful inside and out, but most importantly you. out. You're right. Thank you. Thanks for doing this, honey. Uh, next time, let's be in person with cocktails. I would live and die for that moment. All right, good. Thank you. Thanks, Randy. And now the show is over, girl, so thanks for listening. Is my time up already with Adam Rapon? Is it me or is everyone a little turned off?